Welcome back to Plane Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. This is episode 30 and I'm delighted to have special guest Jim Spath join us to talk about his experiences at TWA. His life intersected with a number of accidents and he has a unique view of events and he's going to describe working as a salesman, a ticketing agent and a senior manager at TWA. He's written a book called Up, Up and Astray, memoir of an airline bachelor during the golden age of air travel. Jim is a great storyteller, and his eye for detail captures the background to some of the accidents I've already covered, particularly in the 1960s and 70s. We start his story as Jim arrives in Cincinnati in 1964, where he's just found out that he got his schedule wrong in his attempt at joining the Cincinnati Police Force, and he's wondering what to do next. Little did he know what aviation had in store for him. So I walk, as I'm walking back to wait for my car to be repaired, I have several more hours to kill, I see all these planes flying overhead. And the gas station is, is, was located right across the Missouri River from the Kansas City Municipal Airport at the time. Since then, it's moved out to the, it's an executive. Anyhow, just for a lark, I went in to uh, put in an application. What the heck? Why not? And uh, they didn't accept walk-ins, but I said, well, I drove all the way from Cincinnati to come here. And long story short, the guy comes in to me while I'm waiting. He says, I'll interview you. And he says, uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm a lieutenant with the Marine Corps Reserve Unit here in Kansas City, and I see you are a member of the Marine Corps Reserve in Cincinnati. That's how I got my interview, and two weeks later, I'm pushing steps up to uh, Constellations uh, in Indianapolis, and I worked in operations, which was very a great experience in a small city because you did a little bit of load control, uh, uh, flight information, worked the gates, uh, even lost and found. So uh, from there, then I uh, came to Cincinnati uh, to work the ticket counter and gates because they got some new flights to New York. So I came back to my hometown. Uh, after working there a while, I was promoted to sales rep in Cincinnati, where I called on travel agents and industrial accounts, so on and so forth. And then from there, I went to a senior sales rep in Dayton. And then uh, the job that most people always wanted, the 747s came out. TWA had a lot of crew members on a 747. They were all members of union. So they created a position called director of customer service, which was a management position. And we flew along with the, a given crew for a month. And we had the, uh, most of the passengers just thought we were PR people to talk to the passengers, but we also had line authority over the flight attendants and pursers. So I've, I've had quite an extensive, like you said, um, in every, I've done everything, but pretty much work on commissary and fly the plane. <laughs> okay. Now let's go over some of the incidents. I mean, your life has, has intersected, uh, given your decades of experience has intersected with quite a few um, of the well-known incidents and accidents, but I'm going to go through that list that you sent me. And, sure. and if you can just recall each one and, and tell me a few things about it and anything that you think is unique, um, because your view is pretty unique. You know, we, we uh, I'm used to speaking to, to pilots about these issues. And of course you forget that people who have the most experience often are on the ground watching things happen or monitoring or, or maintaining and so on. Um, so first of all, November 8th, 1965, you were working as uh, CBG um, and Transworld Airlines, uh, TWA. Um, explain to me what you saw, what happened that evening. 
Um, I was working the counter that evening. Uh, I was a ticket agent uh, on duty at that time for TWA, uh, and we were not far away from the American Airlines ticket counter. Um, to give you a little bit of background, uh, well, first of all, we all of a sudden it, we heard that American had a flight from LaGuardia that didn't make it into the airport. It crashed on the hill, and right away the whole tenor of everybody working at the airport becomes very somber. Uh, even if it's not your airline, uh, it's still someone else in the same industry, so to speak. Um, to give you an idea of how this plane crashed, uh, it, it, and back up to a moment, I guess, that Cincinnati earlier had an airport called Lunkin Field, which was in the limit, in the city limits of Cincinnati. The problem with Lunkin Field is it was not far from the Ohio River. And back when uh, Lunkin Field existed for the plains like in the 30s and in the early 40s, whenever the river flooded, Lunkin would go underwater. Uh, today, it's just used mostly for uh, private uh, jets. Uh, and since then, there's been a levee built uh, and the flood is not as bad as it was then. Well, at that time, right after the Second World War, Senator Albin Barkley of Kentucky said, hey, in northern Kentucky, we have up on what you might say is a mesa, uh, an old Army Air Corps base, and we could use that for Cincinnati's airport. And it would only be like a 15-minute drive once you crossed a river from downtown Cincinnati into Kentucky. Okay, so to give you an idea of now where this airport is, it's on a, a mesa and on the other side of the Ohio River in Ohio, it's on a hilltop too, the, the, where we have residences and colleges and stuff. So when you come in for the prevailing winds usually coming out of the south, you come in at runway 18 or due south, uh, you cross over the hill in Cincinnati and then it, you, you'd see a dip down there of a 400 feet to where the Ohio River Valley is. And in the evening, when you cross over that hill, if you're sitting in a window seat, all of a sudden you look down at the river and you see the traffic down there and streetlights. Well, actually, you're looking at 800 feet above the uh, airport instead of 400 feet. So this flight came in. Uh, he did a, a bank toward the, the end to, to make his uh, final approach. And uh, I'm not, I won't go into all the specifics that I've, that I've read about it, but he hit the hill before you got up to the level of the airport. Uh, the weather wasn't all that good that, that night, but uh, there, there's some, uh, some reporting that the, the, the pilots weren't that experienced flying the 727s, which it was. And back then, the 727s were rumored to have a pretty uh, higher sink rate than the other wing-mounted jets, so to speak. <clears throat> So uh, it hit the hill, and there was quite a loss of life there. Uh, and at that time, too, 727s were also involved in other accidents, and some people called them the flying coffins. So that was my first experience, uh, to be at the airport when something occurred like that only three miles away from you. Yes, control flights into terrain, CFIT, it sounded like that event. I mean, I haven't covered it on Pancrash Diaries yet, but but I'm particularly interested in the next example, which March 5th, 1966, British Airways, 9-11. Um, I did cover this on one of my uh, podcasts. It's the famous flight of turbulence basically causing 
uh, airliner to come apart. So tell me a little bit about that and how it intersected with your life. Yeah, uh, it's a, obviously a very, very small percentage of the population of the world uh, who have had a loved one or a member of their family involved in a fatal accident. And in this case, uh, even though it was over in Japan, I can back up. When I was working in Indianapolis, working the gates, uh, the constellations especially, I met a very attractive, what they called air hostess at the time, who was based in Boston, Linda. And uh, we started dating. And, uh, oh, I guess about a year later, we were dating off and on. I was a, a, finally a, a ticket agent in Cincinnati, still seeing Linda. She told me that she and two other TWA hostesses were going on a vacation and they had passes to fly on BOAC, British uh, BOAC at the time, and they were going to Japan. I said, fine. And uh, wow, she had met my mother. Uh, they got along fine, blah, blah. And uh, I remember getting a call one Sunday morning before uh, I had to go to work at the airport. It's my mother telling me that uh, Linda had died, that she just read the, uh, the morning paper and they had uh, the pictures of the three TWA flight attendants who happened to be among those who died in that crash. Yes, and it was even more uh, macabre because the passengers obviously looked out the window on the way out and they saw the burnt remains of Charlie Papa. 402, as you point out, and uh, yeah. crashed, I think, the day before, um, if I'm correct. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I think the, there was another aircraft accident around Tokyo right bef- uh, a couple of weeks before that. Uh, some people say crashes occur in threes. They had to look at the crash site because it was uh, off to the side, and I've seen videos of it. And little did they know that uh, they were going to be victims themselves. I mean, in, in March the 9th, 1967, that was TW553, uh, and this was an example of many, unfortunately, of media collisions. And tell me about how your life again intersected with that incident. Yeah, I was a sales rep now for TWA in Cincinnati. We were in the sales office talking about something uh, in the late morning, I guess it was, or early afternoon. And uh, we got a call from uh, the sales office in Dayton that... Uh, that flight was involved in a mid-air collision over Urbana, Ohio. And uh, we drove up to Dayton to see if there was anything we could do at the Dayton sales office. Uh, and something like that, there's obviously nothing you can do out at the site of the crash, nor did a sales rep really have any business being out there. Uh, anyhow, uh, they didn't need our help. They had enough of people to work on <clears throat> the aftermath. I guess a week later on, uh, I was uh, to attend the funeral of a crash victim from Cincinnati. And <clears throat> we notify the, uh, the next of kin uh, that we'll be on hand uh, to assist in any way. And they did send me a envelope with a wedding ring in it because that's all I could give his wife that they could actually identify with being something of her husband's. And Really, the, the strange part is when I went over to the house that evening, uh, a little girl opened the door and she had those uh, pajamas on to, to go all the way down and cover the toes and all that. And it had all kinds of little airplanes on it, uh, which was just sort of different. Uh, I really talked to, the, yeah, bizarre. I talked to the wife. She's very kind. Uh, she was with her mother and her father. 
and uh, then I gave her the wedding ring and, and it, because it had the engravement inside. To back up, when you uh, work after a flight, there's a long questionnaire that a TWA rep would go with the next of kin, uh, covering things like what kind of jewelry they had, so on and so forth, uh, getting so um, picky as to even ask if the person bites their nails. So uh, we didn't know about the wedding ring, and that's all I had to give her. I mean, the next year, what is the same year, 1967 in November, November 6th, it was TW159 and boarded its takeoff and then overran the runway. Um, we've had many of those incidents. I uh, mentioned a couple of them. Uh, tell us a little bit about that accident. Well, uh, I'm a sales rep in Cincinnati, and I, and I stopped off at the Lineman's Grocery Store to uh, get some cigarettes. I was a, uh, a pretty heavy smoker at the time. And uh, I, I walked into the, the grocer, and he says, hello. And he, he says, two packs of camels, yes. He's, <laughs> he puts the cigarettes on the counter. He said, you work for TWA, don't you? And I said, yeah, I'm sales rep in Cincinnati. He said, well, I'm really sorry to hear about your crash. And I said, oh, really? Where was this at? And I'm thinking somewhere like Kennedy, O'Hare, St. Louis, Kansas. He said, well, right here in Cincinnati, it was just on the the radio, he just crashed on takeoff. So anyhow, I jump in the car and I, I turn the radio on and I head on down to um, the airport <laughs> and uh, I there was a, a police officer, an airport policeman where you would take the service road to get to the, the, the point of the, uh, the, the crash. And I talked my way in by showing him my ID and said, you know, I've got to go here. And he said, okay. So even though you know that there is a 707 that overshot the runway and you're going to see it. When you turn the corner of a small little country road and your headlights pick up a tail of a 707 sitting across the road, it's, it's still like, wow, <laughs> this is really this. <laughs> so I got out of the car and I walked around and uh, the first thing I saw, well, there was a, some obviously crash truck there, but there was no fire to speak of, but it, it had the scene all lit up. There were some uh, media people there, TV reporters and uh, paper, newspaper reporters, and uh, people milling around. And I spotted right away the three pilots, uh, the three crew, uh, the cockpit crew members. They didn't have their caps on, but you could tell by their trench coats. Blah, blah, blah. So I went right over, got them, and told them who I was. I said, Get in my car. I'll open the trunk so you can put your, your bags in, and I'll get you out of here before the news people want to start talking to you. So I, as they were putting it in, I said, I'll be back in a minute. I just want to see what it looks like inside a plane that just overshot a runway. And it missed going straight into a, a sharp hill by about six feet, the nose of the, the plane. And there's pictures of that, too, that can be seen uh, uh, also online. <laughs> and when you look, the, the doorway, the now, uh, you could almost just walk up into it. It was right about waist level. And I looked in. The crash truck was on the other side, illuminating the cabin. And this is just a plane that overshoots a runway. And all the oxygen masks are down. Seat cushions all over the place. M magazines back then, the airline furnished magazines during flight. There was just, I'm thinking, if this is what you see from overshooting a runway, you can just imagine the damage I'm driving the, the three cockpit crew members over. The radio was on, and, a, and an announcer was saying, well, when the captain was uh, going down the runway, and, <laughs> and the captain who's sitting next to me says, 
they don't know it was the first officer who was taken off the plane. <laughs> so that was sort of a, a little comment he made with a few chuckles just to sort of break the, the stress of everything that was going on at the time. Oh, and, and another thing that I thought was something to think about, too, obviously a good reason why airports shut down all incoming flights once there's an accident. I said, well, where's the flight attendants? And one of the crew members says, oh, they, they walked back to the terminal with a couple of sailors. So they went up the hill and walked down a live runway to go back to the terminal. It was November that year, again, a couple of weeks later, where 126 from LAX um, crashed short of the runway. My goodness. Uh, I, I, I put down 126, but it was really 128. Yeah. Mm, well, tell me about that. That was uh, a night I will never forget. I looked at my uh, girlfriend who came in. She was hearing the announcement. And I said, well, we had our turn two weeks ago. And I said, you had your turn uh, a, a year ago before that. And I said, Delta is the biggest carrier in Cincinnati. American is second. We were third. I said, it, it might be Delta that uh, had the crash. But I'll call operations and find out who it is. So I called up operations. And the fellow who I knew, Bob Hudson, said, it's our 128 from Los Angeles. I told him, from my experience, airlines want to go out to the scene of an accident, the, the, the support staff, but nobody thinks about going to the hospital. So I said, well, Bob, <clears throat> put me down, is going to the hospital. What hospital are they taking him to? He said, St. Elizabeth in Covington. He said, put me down for going to St. Elizabeth then. <clears throat> so he said, okay. So I jumped in the car and drove right away to St. Elizabeth, which is about a 20-minute drive, I would say. I got to St. Elizabeth's and I met the lady who was the uh, hospital rep. I met her on the unloading dock at the uh, hospital, which was not busy at all, just a routine kind of admission. And uh, she told me that I think that I got the, she said they had 22 that were admitted so far. And uh, she said several of them have already passed and we have them in a, in a morgue uh, the, over here at the end of uh, the emergency rooms. I said, well, how long has it been since the last of the uh, accident victims came in? And she says, about 20 minutes. Well, that, that's a bad sign <laughs> because uh, if there were more survivors, they had ambulances galore they could get, they'd be coming in one after another. So um, I knew then it was a, a very high fatality rate uh, during the crash. So <clears throat> I went into the office and made a few phone calls and I was started getting phone calls from like CBS in New York, ABC, wanting to know what, what I could tell them. And all I could tell them is what kind of an aircraft it is, uh, where it was coming from. And back in those days, you didn't have the hub and spoke. So it originated in Los Angeles, came to Cincinnati. But then the same flight went on to uh, Pittsburgh and Boston. And there was a lot of one-stop flights available that, that existed during those days. And I'm in the room uh, answering a few calls, and a, a Newport, Kentucky detective walks in, and he says, there's a, uh, a hostess on, in the operating room that wants to talk to a TWA rep. Uh, okay, so I followed him. I've never been in an operating room when they had an operation going on. I've been there, obviously, as a patient, but it's weird to walk in there, and I see this lady on the table. Um, she had a leg injury in they were uh, cauterizing it and powdering it down. And I could see that she had most of her hair burned off and lots of facial scratches. And I was really surprised when she said, oh, hi, Jim. 
and it was Ellie Kurtak, a, a very nice young lady who uh, knew me from ramping her flights, uh, working her flights in Indianapolis and Dayton when I worked the gates. And uh, I said, oh, my gosh, how are you? It, well, it's stupid to ask. And she says, he came in too low. I said, oh, and I thought, hmm. She says, uh, I was in the jump seat in the rear. And the first time we hit, I thought was a hard landing. And then she says, after that, we really hit hard, and I could see the fuselage open and trees. And I said, wow. And you can just imagine everybody in the operating room listening to this account that uh, investigators would maybe say a year later, you know. And uh, she said, by the way, Jim, she says, uh, I want you to, if you will, call the young lady who lives in my apartment building across the hall from me. She has a key to my apartment. Would you have her? feed my cat. After that, I went to the cafeteria in the hospital, and I'm sitting there trying to have some kind of a late breakfast, and uh, it's pretty full, and there's a gentleman at a table right across from me, uh, dressed in a suit, and he's having breakfast, and a lady comes over to me, and she says, my fiance was on that flight. Uh, when are they going to get a passenger list? And I, I explained to her that, uh, and back then, too, Tickets were paper tickets. There was no electronic tickets. Um, they were handwritten many times, uh, unless it was done uh, off of a Sabre system or a travel agent printed them on a typewriter. So some of the tickets, uh, by the time you got to the second or third flight copy, they're very hard to read. So you, you had that problem. You also had a problem of people using fake names. You didn't have to go through security and match your ticket with your, with your ID. And there were family plan fairs where people cheated and were fake husbands or fake kids or whatever the case might be. But when we trained for the job on board the 747s and the L-1011s, we had to take a couple days of safety training. And uh, we learned a slogan. It's embodied in me. I think of it every time I land or take off. It's plus three, minus eight. The first three minutes of flight and the last eight minutes, about 95% of your uh, accidents occur then. And I always think of that whenever I'm taking off for landing. It isn't over until it's over. And uh, it, it, it was interesting taking the, as the safety courses because you go through all the, uh, all the past crashes. The instructor goes through them and analyzes them. And after you spend a day watching those films and that, you think, do I really want this job? <laughs> Seeing all the ways things can happen. And where do you think we're going in aviation generally when it comes to recovery? Well, just talking about avi commercial aviation in general, I, I, the reason I miss the so-called golden age of aviation, yeah, we had crashes, obviously, uh, and learned a lot from them. And thanks to those crashes, we're much safer today. But uh, it was really fun to be an airline employee back in the golden age of aviation. As a matter of fact, I resigned from TWA after 10 years as uh, being an in-flight uh, director of customer service because it was no longer fun. I was still a bachelor and uh, I, I did too many. I, I, when they came out with the wide body jets and the cheaper fares, it brought opened the gates to uh, multitudes of people who weren't sophisticated flyers. And uh, it, it just wasn't like it like it was in those days. And it was so simple. I have already gone to the airport in Dayton on a whim 
uh, on a couple of days off, I parked my car 10 minutes before f- flight time because it, the parking lot was right in front of the terminal. Uh, the people, uh, obviously, the behavior of a lot of the passengers anymore uh, is deplorable. That's Jim Spath talking about his experiences at TWA and looking at accidents from the other side, from behind the scenes. Thanks for sharing, Jim. Don't forget to look out for his book called Up, Up and Astray, Memoir of an Airline Bachelor During the Golden Age of Air Travel. Next episode, we're back to normal, focusing on the Air Canada 797 burning incident in 1983 when a DC-9 burst into flame on the runway after landing. We'll hear how that changed rules about smoke detectors, fire retardant seats, and floor lighting. Then the following episode, we'll take a look at decompression incidents, including the death of golfer Payne Stewart. A suggestion, by the way, from a listener. Until next, aviate, navigate, and communicate safely. 